I want to personally invite you to join me and all the other Brock stars for this year's 13th live and in-person plant stock event outside of Asheville, North Carolina in the little town of Black Mountain. It's 1,500 acres is loaded with wildlife, trees, trails, streams. It is a nature wonderland. And what's also a wonderland are all the incredible speakers that you get to hang with all weekend long, like Jane and Ann Esselstyn, Dr. Will Bolshewitz of Fiber Fueled, Carly Bodrug, Miss Plant You, Dr. Gemma Newman is over from the UK. We have Dr. Don Musalem from the Mayo Clinic, John Mackey, the ex-CEO of Whole Food Market Stores, myself, Brian Hart, and a special appearance by the Plant Bros. Here's the kicker. All these Brock stars are there from Friday till Sunday, and they want to rub elbows with all of you, whether it's over buffets of Plant Strong Fair for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, whether it's going on an afternoon hike, a swim, pickleball, frisbee golf, kickball, cornhole, dancing, we're having live music. It's all there in this fun weekend extravaganza that we affectionately call Plant Stock. Simply go to liveplantstrong.com and then click on Plant Stock 2024 and grab yourself a ticket before they sell out. See you there. Every patient is a privilege to care for. Mm. But when I have a patient who's also a doctor, I know in supporting that individual to optimize their lifestyle, that's going to pay it forward in in great fashion because now all of a sudden the way that they practice medicine moving forward has changed. Yeah, I've It's been modified. And that's going to affect each and every one of their patients and each and every one of their experiences with other peers. Um, I think we have a responsibility to educate and, and act as mentors for interns and residents and medical students. And so it's this beautiful, all of a sudden it flowers, mm-hmm. you know, and, and we can, by changing one, one life or by introducing these powerful aspects of lifestyle, it just, it's infectious. Season three of the Plant Strong podcast explores those Galileo moments where you seek to understand the real truth around your health and dare to see the world through a different lens. This season, we honor those courageous seekers who are paving the way for you and me. So grab your telescope, point it towards your future, and let's get Plant Strong together. Hello, everyone. I'm Rip Esselstyn, and this is the Plant Strong Podcast, where each and every week, I bring a wide variety of guests to talk about the subject we all love, the power of plants to change the world, prevent and reverse disease, but also greatly enhance the quality of your life. You are in for a treat today as I dig in deep into the all-encompassing world of lifestyle medicine physician, Dr. Sarai Stanzik. Her story has a little of everything that will have you on the edge of your seat, personal trauma, transformation, redemption, discovery, and a passionate pursuit to change not just her health and the health of her patients, 
but of the healthcare field as a whole. Not a small task, but as you'll hear, this plant-armored warrior is more than up to the task. It hasn't been an easy climb. In 1995, as a third-year medical resident, Dr. Stanzik was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. At the time, it may as well have been a death sentence for this young doctor. This unforeseen health challenge changed the course of her life, both professionally and personally. And today, we talk about the impact that diagnosis had on her life, as well as her Galileo blueberry moment that ultimately changed the way she viewed her prognosis. Today, over 25 years later, in addition to being a physician, you can also add marathon finisher, filmmaker, and author to her long list of credentials. Her film, Code Blue, examines the healthcare industry and offers solutions featuring the practice of lifestyle medicine to prevent, treat, and manage disease. And her new book, What's Missing from Medicine, offers six lifestyle changes to overcome chronic disease. We go deep into these six lifestyle habits, so let's not waste a single moment. Prepare to be empowered with the incomparable Dr. Sarai Stanzik. Let me start by asking you this, because this is season three of the Plant Strong Podcast, and in season three, um, we're really trying to understand the person that I'm talking to, their Galileo moment, and, and, and what allowed you to look through the lens of that telescope and then see kind of the truth that kind of sets you free and and and, and then also informed your path forward uh, and with you I think it's it's pretty pretty powerful yeah. and so I'd love for you to share that sure well you know my story really begins in 1995 at the time I was a third year medical resident and I was um in the midst of a call, working a you know, 24-hour shift. And I woke up around 3 o'clock in the morning to find that I couldn't feel my legs. And that led to uh, the emergency room, an MRI, that confirmed the diagnosis of multiple sclerosis. And so there I was, 28 years old, abruptly learning that I had this um, chronic disease, incurable chronic disease. And I knew in that moment that my life had changed dramatically and irrevocably. And so... Did you um, actually have like lesions? Was that diagnosed? Multiple lesions in my brain and spinal cord. And in fact, uh, the burden of disease was significant. I mean, when the neurologist saw me, he said, Sarai, uh, you, you need to start planning for a future that may lead you to a wheelchair, you know, um, nursing home setting. I mean, these were all the, the, the terminology that he used at that time. Um, that was 25 years ago. 25 years ago, yeah. And um, he told me that, um, I know this diagnosis is difficult, but here's the good news. Uh, a new drug, the first drug had just been approved for multiple sclerosis, a drug called beta seron. And he said, this is a drug that is quite effective, but it, but it's not going to be easy. It's a drug you're going to have to inject every day, has a significant side effect profile, which is numerous. Uh, but he said, um, it's your only, uh, this is your best chance to reduce uh, 
or slow down the disease. You can't cure the disease, but he said this was the the way in which we could slow it down mm-hmm. by more time. Uh, meaning by more time where I wasn't disabled. Mm-hmm. So, of course, I was going to do whatever he asked me to do. I mean, he was a leading MS specialist, and so I started the medication. Uh, and the side effect profile was um, difficult to manage. I mean, I would wake up, I would inject the drug at 10 o'clock and at 2 o'clock in the morning, like clockwork, I would wake up rip with violent shaking, chills, fever, um, just i felt like i had the flu i couldn't sleep Mm. um the injections were every day so and i would develop these really painful injection site reactions i almost looked like a leopard all because at some point i ran out of real estate like where do you inject Mm. um and after doing this for some time i i I just you know a month into this i i can't do this anymore i mean i uh i'm i'm ready to give this up and when i approached him about it he said are you crazy? You can't. This is your only chance. You have to remain compliant with this medication or you're going to be in a wheelchair within 10 years. Mm-hmm. So um, his solution to the problem was what we'll do is we'll treat the side effects of the of this drug with other drugs. Right. So when I couldn't sleep, I was given Ambien. When I, when I couldn't wake up, I was given Provigil, an amphetamine-like drug. And um, when I became depressed, I was given Prozac. So you can see the pattern here. By the time, um, you know, few years into the diagnosis i was taking about a dozen medications i was a young woman walking around with a pill box uh the disease progressed regardless despite a young woman physician a young woman physician yeah going through my residency my chief resident year my specialty as an infectious disease specialist i mean i fought my way through all of that with the pill box with the cane with the diaper the humiliation of it all uh, and I, I grew uh, hopeless. And then my moment, the aha moment. And this aha moment, um, what year was that? 2003. So you've been living with the MS and kind of the meds and stuff for eight years? Eight years, yeah. And, and an exacerbation <clears throat> probably at least two, th- maybe three times a year where I would, an exacerbation in MS is like, it's it's a, an extraordinary disease in that you might feel well today and then the floor falls out from under you the next day like mm. you develop something called optic neuritis blindness or you wake up and you can't feel your legs or you wake up and you have a weak arm you know it, it it's unpredictable and and throughout all of there is this um fatigue that's hard to describe but you feel like it's hard to just get up out of bed. Mm-hmm. And somehow I'm managing to get through this. I'm the chief of infectious diseases at the VA in New York. And I'm sitting in my office one day. And um, my secretary drops off mail. And on top of this big stack of mail, I see a journal. And on the cover of the journal, I see multiple sclerosis and blueberries. And I think, what is that all about? So curiosity i you know i picked it up i turned and it was a very small poorly constructed unscientific study that essentially took a group of ms patients and fed them a diet enriched in blueberries and these doctors or scientists suggested that it was the uh, 
anthocyanin, the phytonutrient in the blueberry that was playing a role in, in an anti-inflammatory fashion, and that it was somehow the patients that were eating this blueberry-enriched diet subjectively felt better. Now, as a physician and scientist, you know, that's, a, that's not an objective clinical mm-hmm. endpoint. Um, and I sort of thought this is, uh, you know, sort of wonky and not very serious. Had had uh, lunch with a colleague of mine that afternoon. He's a neurolo- He was a neurologist. I uh-huh. told him about it. He laughed. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, but you know what, Rip? I couldn't get that silly study out of my head. I just kept thinking about those blueberries. <laughs> and um, not your favorite fruit. <laughs> yes. And I and I said to myself um, and. An important question uh, started to arise from that line of thinking as I thought more and more. And it wasn't that I thought eating the blueberries was going to resolve my issues, right? For the first time in my adult life as a practicing attending physician, dual board certified, I considered the following question. Could diet and disease, could there be a connection? Mm. And... Isn't that extraordinary that here I was a physician and I knew nothing about uh, nutrition and its, in, and its role in, uh, in, in the formation of disease? It's, it's uh, hard well, to fathom. Yeah, yeah. Well, it almost seems, knowing what we know now, yes. egregious. Like, wow, what a miss. Yes. Huge miss. Huge miss. But that it was that, in that moment... It, it catalyzed this insatiable appetite in me. Like, I want to learn as much as I can about these connections. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, I delved into the literature. First study that I came across, published in 1952 in the New England Journal of Medicine, Roy Swank, who was back in the <clears> 50s, <throat> um, hypothes- he hypothesized that saturated fat was playing a role in the pathogenesis of multiple sclerosis. And back then... He started treating patients with a low-fat, plant-based diet. And people thought he was crazy. But he followed about 140-plus patients over 34 years, ultimately published data in The Lancet, 1990. And he found, and he reported then, that 95% of his patients were Mm disability-free. And I was like, oh, my God. Every time I see my doctor, he's talking about this wheelchair. Is there something to this? And it wasn't just Swank. There were several other publications in literature that spoke similarly to mm-hmm. the same. And it and it wasn't just food. It was all these other aspects of lifestyle that that play a role in in uh, the formation of disease. Um, and so anyway, I I just consumed all of this literature. It it, it excited me. Um, suddenly there was hope. Uh, I I made an appointment to visit my neurologist with all of these articles, you know. <laughs> Me even made copies, highlighted v- sections that I wanted him to be aware of. I, I presented the, my <clears throat> thoughts, and um, he was very surprised that I would f- consider that this could potentially change the course of my disease. And he looked at me and he said, look... Because he was one of my professors, um, he said to me, uh, "Your physician, um, I think you know better. You know that this is not uh, going to changing your diet and and changing your lifestyle is not going to in any important way change the course of this chronic neurologic disabling autoimmune disease." 
What you need to do is remain compliant with the medications as prescribed. Uh, and, and then he said to me, um, there's nothing you've done wrong. Uh, it's not your fault that you have MS. The reason you have MS is because of your genes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And there's nothing you can do about your genes. And so how did you take uh, what he had to say? Well, I, I was, um, it, it certainly set me back, you know. Uh, I, I very much admired him uh, and appreciated who he was and, and um, his expertise in the field. But it didn't take very long before I realized that, um, with all due respect, that I, I felt strongly that there was something here. I mean, I, I had read the evidence, and I felt uh, compelled to um, introduce these changes into my life. I was willing to take that risk. Because the alternative was my dependency on the many medications. I had no quality of life. Mm -hmm. So to me, it was, I'm willing to take this risk. But that was a personal decision for myself, and yeah. one that I discussed with my husband it was so, not so a you were married at the time i was married how long have you been married um at, at the time about five years uh -huh. mm -hmm. and so so he had met you maybe or and you guys had gotten married when he you had me. you had ms yes he met he well he met me three weeks before i was diagnosed and he stuck around <laughs> Well, he's you know what? Good, good for him because he's got to see he's he has got to witness this insane recovery, hasn't he? Yes, he has. Right, and how you were just flourishing. Yeah, and he's part of my medicine too. I mean, I have this amazing spouse who's just yeah been with me through it, through it all, and, nice. and there's a, love is part of this quotient. Right, right, and I want to <laughs> I want to I want to talk about that. Yeah neurologist who was a professor who you admired and respected and yeah. basically said Sarai come on you're a physician yes yeah, stick this with is, the meds stick with the meds this is you know where's let's stick with the science right sure. and so and so have you gone back to him since has he has he come around at all I did visit him around the time that I was filming Code Blue because I actually wanted to interview him yeah but he didn't no he didn't want any part of it no yeah mm -mm. yeah well, that's that's unfortunate, I suppose. He um, was very happy to see me, though, and he was he was surprised to see me walking on two feet and looking well. Yeah. Um, but and when did, and did you hand him the stack of papers again and said, <laughs> "I really think you should take a closer look at this." <laughs> yeah, and I think yeah, he still was very resistant, and in fact, he he thought that it could be. Um, <laughs> well, you know he. Yeah. He thought I should be very careful about what, I, you know, I never tell, let me just make this point. I never tell MS patients not to take medicine or not to follow. Uh, I'm not an MS specialist and, and they should have uh, that conversation with their doctors. All I'm saying is if you have, if you have MS and all you do is take these disease modifying therapies and you ignore uh, everything else. I mean, I, I've seen in my practice, many young women with multiple sclerosis who are being managed by MS specialists, and they come to see me because they've heard my story and they've, they want to learn about lifestyle medicine and they want to introduce modifications into their own lives. But, you know, so these women uh, will come to see me and yes, they have MS, but guess what? They're also, they may also be obese, mm -hmm. hypercholesterolemic, depressed, pre-diabetic, and that's being ignored by mm -hmm. these MS specialists. And we know all of those components are 
promoting the progression of this disease. So I think it's it's unethical for us to ignore all these other comorbidities and just manage the MS, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because guess what happens when you introduce these lifestyle modifications, the patient loses weight, the pre-diabetic state reverses, the fatty liver disease reverses, the hypercholesterolemia reverses, and guess what? Their MS gets better. Well, (laughs) and I think the first chapter in your book, you basically talk about how these chronic Western diseases are, they're man-made diseases. They're man-made diseases, yeah. Uh, That's, (laughs) people don't like to hear that, man-made disease, but they are. Yeah. They are. Yeah. Um, and and some people will feel like that's you're blaming people, and I'm not blaming. I, I'm I'm empowering. I hope. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The idea I, is to empower, not to blame. Um, we're like uh, we're we're in trouble right now, Rip, in our country. You know, the chronic disease epidemic is ever growing. We have a population that obesity rates are climbing. Every year. You know, mm-hmm. when I started the book, writing the book, in the section that I write about obesity at the time, you know, so I'm doing my research. I go to the CDC to look at what is the obesity rate at the time, right? At the time, it was 39.8% of the population was obese in the United States. Last, and, what, and what percent were considered overweight? Like oh, 75? Right. If you consider overweight and obese, you're yeah. in the 70s, right? Yeah. But... In, in one year, so now I'm at the final point of edits, sending in last edits to the publisher, so I'm rechecking my facts. Go back to the CDC to check the obesity rate. Now... Is, it, is there a four? Does it start with a four? Yes. Now it's 42.4%. Oh, my gosh. So it goes up in almost year, 3%. Yes, 2.6%. Is that, is that amazing? No, it doesn't seem conceivable. It doesn't. But that's the state that we're in. Yeah. And each year, it, there is no, it, it's, it, just when you think it's going to plateau, like it can't get worse, it does. And we just continue to go about our way, like, you know, I'm an infectious disease physician. It was common for me to see an infected diabetic foot ulcer in, in, in a veteran, right? And so the question to me would be, what antibiotic, Dr. Stanzik, should this patient be on? Right? So I would examine these patients and find often they had bone involvement, this is what we call osteomyelitis, and that buys them at least six weeks of antibiotics, maybe longer, mm-hmm. and we would debride. The, and despite the aggressive nature and, and the appropriate antibiotic regimen, often these patients wouldn't get better, and so they end up with an amputation, mm. right? Mm. So now they're... The, Status post amputation, they become more sedentary, they gain more weight, blood pressure further out of control, blood glucose. So what happens? Stroke or heart attack. And so this is not unique to me. This happens every day in every hospital across our country. And everyone, and it's like normalized. Mm -hmm. Diabetics, they develop amputations, they lose their vision. But here's the thing. We have the knowledge and understanding today to prevent more than 90% of diabetes. This is a disease that is skyrocketing in our country. The CDC predicts that by 2050, 30% of Americans will be living with diabetes. And today, we know how to prevent it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
How is this not the most important message that we're all delivering in the field of medicine? Number, number, number one. Let's just say it's 2003. You're now, you're eight years into your, your disease. You're mm-hmm. walking with a cane. Walking with a cane. Walking with a cane. But you're now hitting the blueberries, <laughs> right? And well, you, <laughs> whole plant kingdom I'm hitting. The whole, I'm hitting the, it really hard. The whole plant kingdom. Yeah. Is, there, is there any... Was there a book or was there a person or was there something that like inspired you besides some of the research you you, you saw? No, I just, I was, I inspired myself. Okay, okay, (laughs) fantastic. Yeah, I just read, um, I read the literature and the literature was pretty clear um, that, uh, that it was, it was about, it was about um, fiber and this microbiome and these phytonutrients and these phytochemicals. these antioxidants and their anti-inflammatory effects, and um, I started to piece this together, and I, I just I started with my diet, and then the exercise. The exercise was really hard because I couldn't do much of anything. I mean, think about it. I couldn't feel my legs; they were heavy. I was walking with a cane or or crutches, and so the best thing I could do was. A stationary bike mm-hmm. and my husband would literally assist me to get on and I could do a minute that's it and then I would get numb and and a shower of pins and needles to when he would carry me off numbness pain shower of, of like pins and needles it would take about 15 to 20 minutes to recover from that drinking water, getting my body temperature up. In multiple sclerosis, when your body temperature gets up, you get symptomatic. It's called Uthoff's phenomenon. Mm, mm. Uh, and, and so for many years, it was felt MS patients were advised not to exercise. It, it was felt that potentially it was worsening the disease. And when that happened, it felt like it was worsening the disease. Yeah. But I kept getting back on. And you know what I started to notice, Rip? That that period... Of recovery started to lessen mm. started to lessen and it, it's it so, sounds crazy that it was yeah. only a minute but it started out as a minute and over the months it went to five minutes and you know I started to get stronger and and that recovery pain dissipated mm. You know? mm. so as hard as it was to get yourself up get yourself off the couch and 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 move and exercise it was, it was so well worth it incredibly well worth it and, yeah. and that fatigue that was just that heaviness <clears throat> that was part of my life for, mm-hmm. for the many years lifted mm. and i felt energized mm. and i felt like wow mm. this is a new beginning for me an awakening um th- there's something to this yeah and i just kept going you kept going and then at, at some point did you decide to take yourself off the meds Oh yes, I tapered off of every one of those medications. Uh-huh. And uh, over like what period of time? I think it probably it probably took um, three to six months. Uh-huh. The the most the, the most difficult medication to come off of was Ambien. Mm. I was addicted to that drug. Mm-hmm. I didn't know how to sleep without it. Mm. Because every time I went to the doctor, they gave me a prescription. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. It's a terrible drug. Right. Well, I'd love to talk about that because that's part of your um, your 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 wheel of the lifestyle medicine. Yes, yeah, kind of. Yeah. yeah, sleep sleep hygiene. All right. So at some point, you decide 
to like throw away the cane and you decide to start running marathons again. <laughs> <laughs> or run a marathon, right? Right. To so run a marathon. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. It, I, you know. Running a marathon was not on my bucket list. It was not anything that I was interested. I mean, you're you're a triathlete and an Ironman, yes. Yeah, it used to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, this was not part of me or anything that I was interested in. It it just came by my, my brother had run in 2003, ran the the Los Angeles Marathon, mm. and as this awakening came to me, and he started to see me flourish and and started to see um, this transition, he said to me. He lives in Los Angeles, came to visit me in New Jersey one summer, and he looked at me and he said, oh, I think you should run a marathon. And I looked at him like you were, like I wanted to kill him. Yeah. Are you crazy? MS patients don't run marathons. I have MS. Uh, I was angry at him for even suggesting it. And um, that was like another one of those moments like, I have to drop that label. I was I was living my life as this woman with MS first and foremost. Yeah. I wasn't Sarai, I wasn't Dr. Stancic, I wasn't Ralph's wife or Nick's mom. I was an MS patient first. And did you let people know that? Well, I think, no. I, 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 I was always very careful to share it. I, I didn't want people to, because you know, if, and one of the things that really bothered me at, when I was, that was very difficult for me, um, was being a physician with a cane, a young woman with a cane. So the yeah. immediate, the first thing they ask is like, why are you walking yeah. with a cane? Yeah. And then you don't want, I'm, I'm there to serve that patient. I'm here to talk about you, not about me. But it was always this, you know, so then like, what do you do? What do you tell? And then if you tell them, then like, oh, so sorry. Then you get that, and I don't, I didn't like that at all. Yeah. It's brutal. And, and I have to say this, I, I'm not cured. I mean, I, I live with multiple sclerosis. I have a lot of respect for this disease. Yeah. Today, I feel great. Uh, I don't know what tomorrow will be, but I, don't, I live in the moment, and I'm, and I'm joyful and grateful for today and yeah. to be here with you. Uh, but I do all I can each and every day um, to keep myself healthy and to care for myself. Um, but I have a lot of respect for the disease, and I don't know what tomorrow will will mm. will bring. But mm -hmm. um, I'm certainly doing my best each day to keep it at bay. Yeah, well, and there are a whole you know, host of autoimmune diseases yes. that are out there. That I, it feels like when I was growing up, I never heard of lupus. I'd never heard of you know. I mean, they're growing exponentially. Rheumatoid arthritis, although um, MS. You know, there's a handful of them. Yeah, growing exponentially. Yeah. Do you think that? Do you think it's related? What do you think is the the there root cause theories. of that? There are some theories. There are some theories as to um, what that is, and I think I think I read about it in the book. But um, some of the leading theories are um, the, the hygiene theory is one of them. The, that do you know what the hygiene theory is? I so, know. So, so that you, you know, when we were kids, we were we would play in the dirt and we were exposed to any more yes. bugs and you know so so you're building your immune system you're fortifying your immune system so nowadays it's very different what well, we're in the midst that we we can talk about covid but we're in we nowadays you know we we um readily we have antibiotics and and vaccines and and we we purell our kids you know we yeah. don't it's not the same we don't grow up the same way kids don't grow up the same way as we did so um th that's one of the theories uh, another theory is do you, do you know who robin shakan is 
No. Dr. Robinson, she's a gastroenterologist. Okay. And her whole motto is eat clean, live dirty. Yes. Right? I like so that. that's like the hygiene right there. Yeah, yeah the hygiene. Okay. Um, obesity is another theory. Uh, and then uh, social, uh, like stress mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. alcohol. And so those are all, you know, I think it's the environment, the world that, that we live in today. Mm-hmm. Um, is likely contributing, but we've seen this over the past three or four decades, and uh, an exponential, near exponential growth in, in these autoimmune diseases. We'll get right back to Dr. Sarai Stanzik, but first, when we announced the return of our in-person retreat this year, we were bowled over by the response that we got from all of you. Suffice it to say that our team is more than ready to get back together, but you know we weren't sure if you guys were ready well you absolutely were so much so that we filled up our sedona experience super quickly and we have a long wait list of folks that are interested in attending another plant strong retreat so we called our friends in black mountain north carolina just outside Asheville, and we found a week in late september from the 25th to the 30th to be precise when we could bring the band back together and invite more people from around the globe to come together for an incredible week of learning, fellowship, and a whole lot of laughs. Our schedule, as you can imagine, is jam-packed with daily workouts, cooking demos, small group discussions, talks by my father, Dr. Cobble B. Esselstyn Jr., my mother, Ann Kryl Esselstyn, the one and only Dr. Michael Clapper, my sister, Jane Esselstyn, cardiologist and lifestyle medicine physician, Dr. Brian Aspel, and many more. So for all the details, click on the link in the show notes or visit plantstrong.com and then select the Black Mountain Retreat. Uh, I really, really hope to see you on the mountainside. Second, our first of the new Plant Strong products are on a truck heading to our fulfillment center in Plano, Texas, right this second. I cannot wait to unveil this first phase of delicious new foods for you guys. If you'd like to have early access, visit plantstrongfoods.com and enter your email to be on the list. Finally, I know that food is front and center for most of my listeners. It is for me as well. And whether I'm dishing on the latest food trends that show how the tides are turning or how we're discovering new products that are packed with nutritional integrity, we all love and connect over food. To that end, we are launching a new mini podcast called Plant Strong Snackables. It will run twice a month and will give you bite-sized nuggets tasty meal ideas, and foods to get super jazzed over. Watch your inbox. I'll let you know when it's ready. Okay, let's get back to Dr. Sarai Stanzik. When did you uh, first open the Stanzik <laughs> my, Lifestyle my, Medical yeah. Clinic? Uh, it was, I think, 2012. 2000, oh, late right. 2012. And you did that because you you were just so so convinced that lifestyle medicine yeah. was where it was at, huh? I think, yeah. I mean, I so I was in infectious diseases for nearly 20 years, I guess, and it was good work. 
I'm proud of that work. I mean, I cared for patients with HIV <clears throat> and hepatitis and worked in research and developing better treatments. Um, uh, very special career, but the, what always kept coming back to me was this lifestyle medicine, plant-based, mm -hmm. you know, this nutrition piece. I mean, I was managing my patients and talking to them. Back in 2005, the VA started a program called um, the MOVE program, which was sort of like lifestyle medicine light. They wanted to bring attention to lifestyle behaviors in veterans. Because vet like everyone else, veterans are also suffering from chronic the chronic disease epidemic, very yeah. high rates of like you know, mental health issues. And so they introduced this idea, we're going to, we're going to pay attention to diet and exercise and stress. And, uh, and I'm the chief of infectious diseases. And when this program comes to RVA, I volunteer to be the director. Mm. I'm like, I want to do that. Mm. So I started walking with vets at lunchtime and we started to, um, teach them how to eat, um, a healthy diet. And I started to see these vets, um, shedding pounds, shedding prescriptions, looking happier mm. um and it was we had like a multidisciplinary team we had a, a, a physical therapist we had a, a clinical psychologist we had an rd and we worked together to support these patients and i saw mm. that early wow this you know this this is powerful uh and then you know i went on my i was still i'm the infectious disease doc and i ended up uh moving into the research realm and i worked in that capacity for a while but even when i was working in research I would give nutrition classes at lunchtime, like volunteer. And people would show up, uh, yeah. and I and I saw that it was making a difference in my peers. And then at some point, like I said to Ralph, "This is going to sound crazy to you, but I think I'm going to give this up and I'm going to start this practice." And when did you first have that that idea? Uh, probably er early in 2009, but everyone kept talking me out of it. Right. Right. So, so it took almost three years yes. for you to actually like yes. act upon it and make it yes. happen. Wow. Yeah, because yeah. I was continuing to do the work that I was doing, and I was doing it well. But I was, I was miss, I was sad. I knew there was something that I needed to like put out into the world. Yeah, it could, and it very likely was going to fail, um, and maybe it wouldn't make a difference. But I had to do it, it like. I, so I told Ralph one day because I would tell like a friend, a colleague, what do you think? I think I want to do this. <laughs> and then they would say, are you crazy? You know, you're, you're an infectious disease specialist. You're well known in that field. You're really good at it. Look what you've accomplished. Look what you're just going to give that up and start something called lifestyle medicine. What is that? You're a doctor. You're a kook. <laughs> yes. You're crazy. You've lost your mind. Uh, so they would talk me out of it. And then one day I just, I sat down with Ralph and I remember saying, honey, I have to do this. Um, and, it, and, it, and it was a sacrifice. I knew I was giving up my salary, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. my benefits, everything. And I, we have two kids. And, and he said to me, I believe in you. If this is something you feel, you've been talking about this way too long, you have to do it. You, you, you did it. So I did it. I did it. And I had uh, zero patience when I opened the door. Yeah. Crickets. <laughs> uh, and, you know, how do you, how do you bring people in? Nobody knows what lifestyle medicine is. Few people do. Um, my peers know me as an infectious disease physician. So typically your peers are, the, are your stream of referral, but they don't know this thing called lifestyle medicine. They think yeah. Stancic's lost her mind. She's crazy. Um, so 
I just went out and I started to um, give lectures at the local free public library, you know, that yeah. kind of thing, or go to a church and talk about plant-based nutrition, talk about lifestyle medicine, share my story. And, and people started to call and come in. And last year, last year you had how many uh, patients? I think at uh, more than a thousand. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Uh, and and you know one of the one of the, the really cool things about the practice that I could have never predicted is that I had several patients in my practice. At some point, I just lost count that were doctors, and 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 that came to be because at some point we had a patient in common. You know, like I had a mm. an endocrinologist, yeah, who one of their patients had come to see me, a poorly controlled diabetic, fifteen years of poorly controlled diabetes, uh, came in. We worked on their lifestyle, their diet. We was able to to come off of every one of those medications. Hemoglobin A one C went from twelve to five point two. Wow! Loses all this weight, goes back to see the endocrinologist for their six month follow up or whatever, and and they're like, "What did you do?" You know. Um, uh, and then blueberries. Yeah. <laughs> then the endocrinologist calls me, and you know, what are you doing? And we have a conversation. I and I share the I share the literature. Yeah. I share the literature, and then and then they say, you know what? I'm really curious. I want to come see you. And I always think it's like a let's sit down, we'll have a cup of tea. But no, I want to come see you as a patient because I, the endocrinologist, wow, am pre-diabetic. I'm hypertensive. I'm depressed. So then every patient is a privilege to care for. Mm. But when I have a patient who's also a doctor, I know in supporting that individual to optimize their lifestyle, that's going to pay it forward in in great fashion because now all of a sudden the way that they practice medicine mm. moving forward has changed. Yeah, I've It's been modified. And that's going to affect each and every one of their patients and each and every one of their experiences with other peers. Um, I think we have a responsibility to educate and, and act as mentors for interns and residents and medical students. And so it, it's this beautiful, all of a sudden it flowers, mm -hmm. you know, and, and we can, by changing one, one life or by introducing these powerful aspects of lifestyle, it just, it's infectious yeah. in a beautiful now, way. Listen, I, I have seen it firsthand for close to 35 years with my I'm, father's work. Sure. And, and what he's done with, with heart patients and then cardiologists that have been so impressed with the results. And now they're coming and they're trying to learn <laughs> learn the technique and yeah. follow it themselves. There's definitely yeah. a movement in the oh. field of medicine that we need. This is information that needs to be in, in, integrated into the curricula of every yeah. medical school. And that we're recognizing that it is an important therapeutic intervention that needs to be added uh, and I think if we do that, uh, it, it, it's going to be uh, quite a wonderful period. Well, it, it more than it, it, it absolutely 100% needs to be added. It's like the foundation of, of, of everything. And exactly. As we were talking before this, I mean, or maybe during, but 90% um, of these chronic Western diseases could basically evaporate overnight practically yes. if we could just get everybody to adapt it adopt us so you you in your book you have a um uh and i, I want to talk about the book yeah but in the book you start out by saying how the hippocratic oath is 341 words yes and 
you've kind of broken that up and you've taken what you think is the most important part of that Hippocratic Oath. Do you, can you say I, it? And if I not, if you, sure. if you can, if you can, yeah. great. And if not, I can tell you what yeah. it is. But Well, I always say to my medical <laughs> students, it's 341 words, but the 13 that are most important to yes. me is I will prevent disease um, because, pre- now I'm confusing. That's right. Yeah. I will prevent disease because pre- uh, prevention is preferable over cure. That's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, to me, and I want to repeat that, repeat that again because yeah. I think it's so powerful. I will prevent disease whenever I can. Yeah for prevention is preferred to cure. Sure. And how many physicians are actually, they're looking for the cure and they're not even looking at prevention. Because, it seems to me the vast majority. Yeah, by no fault of their own. No, right. Because that's the way they're trained. Right. You know, we're, we're trained on, the, fa- the foundation of medical school is pathogenesis. We learn the disease state. We become experts at recognizing uh, pathology. So we collect data pieces. You know, we take a thorough history and physical exam and we do labs and imaging studies all in an effort to ultimately make a diagnosis. And once we have that diagnosis, what we're taught is the intervention is a pharmaceutical agent, a procedure, or a surgical intervention. That's what we're taught. That's the world that we live in. What we don't learn in medical school is the mirror image of salutogenesis. And that's... What was that word? Say it again. Uh, the mirror image of pathogenesis is salutogenesis. 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 Ooh. Salutogenesis is the study of health and well-being. Mm. So mm. when you're in medical school, you only get half the story of the human health continuum. You learn the disease state, but you don't learn the health state. Mm. Why do you think that the most important half, this salutogenesis yes. approach, is has been missing from medicine? I don't know. I don't know, Rip. I, I think that um, that's that's the million-dollar question. Why has that uh, been missed? Why is there no uh, emphasis placed on it? And I think that um, you know, maybe a, a, early on, the, the physician's role was really to uh, to treat the disease. I don't I don't know, but I th- I, th- I think that the the chronic disease epidemic that we have today. And what we've learned um, through much um, through much literature is that it is this man-made epidemic. So much of what we're dealing with today in clinical uh, medicine is largely a result of the behaviors that we've adopted over the past um, several decades. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the solution to the problem is this idea of salutogenesis. And again, I think that it's catching on. I think that... Um, Physicians are are beginning to acknowledge that the solution to the diabetes epidemic is not to develop yet another drug to treat diabetes because we keep developing them and the diabetes epidemic continues to grow. I mean, two percent when I was a medical student, ten percent diabetes rates today, and the CDC predicts by 2050 it'll be 30 percent by the time my son is my age. Think this about is, that. Two, this is thirty percent. This is not pre-diabetes. No. This is just that that, that have diabetes. Diabetes, which type, is type one and type two. Right. Primarily. Uh, Primarily two. Two. Yeah. But this is a disease that we could prevent, and and it's ever growing, and and currently what we're doing primarily is is to address 
this diabetic population, we're continuously developing new drugs, new targets yeah. to treat the disease. Yet, every endocrinologist who's a diabetologist or internist who are, this should be the primary uh, message that they're I'm conveying. Actually, I'm, ac I'm actually surprised that it's that low, that it's 30% by 2050, because you just talked about the obesity rates, right? Yeah. Being when you wrote the book, they yeah. went from 39 to 41, I think it was. 42. So 40, 40, 42 in just a year. And I would yeah. imagine yeah. that the diabetes rates totally like... Well, those numbers... The, the are, are right in line with that. Yeah, the CDC made those predictions a few years ago. They may have to recalculate. Uh -huh. Yeah. Uh -huh. we, we can't continue on this, on this path. Yeah. This, the healthcare system will collapse. Yep. So do you feel like... So you started the the Stanzik, you know, lifestyle medic, mm -hmm. medical practice in 2012. You've done a documentary, Code Blue. You wrote What's Missing from Medicine. Um, you like you're going after it. You're like trying yeah. to get this message well, out in a big, I'm, wonderful, powerful way. Yeah. Well, it's so important to me. I mean, this drives me. This gets me up in the morning. I and because I this this problem is solvable. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We just have to coalesce our voices, and we just have to empower individuals. And and I think, and and this is what I try to cover in the the book and and in the film. I mean, in the film, the, for me, the, it was about shedding light on this lapse in medical education. Because in order for us to do this, we need to change the way doctors think. We need to change the way that they're trained, so that they. Because here's the thing, if I'm if I spend two hours with a patient talking to them about their diet and their lifestyle, and then they go see their cardiologist next week, and the cardiologist says, Stancic's crazy, ignore yeah. everything she just said, then it doesn't work. We all need to speak to this you 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 know unanimously and ubiquitously. Otherwise it falls through the cracks. Behavior modification is really hard. So we all mm -hmm. have to work you know, all these touch points from different mm -hmm. physicians and healthcare professionals are necessary in order to get people uh, over these difficult, I mean, it's not easy to change your habits after you've been doing, you've been living a certain way for the first five decades of your life. Yeah. Right. Yeah. No. Need a need a need a united front. You need a united front, and we need. And the 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 wonderful news is that I see it. I see this movement washing over the country. I see it especially in in medical students and in residents who get it. Mm. Maybe my peers are a little bit slower to warm up to it they see something but they're not quite there but these young kids they get it i mean they're, and they're excited and they want to they they want to make a difference um so when i see uh some of my medical students that are now residents and 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 they're now educating medical students and i and you can see that ultimately these kids are going to be the chair of medicine they're going to be the cmos at different hospital and healthcare settings and they will demand these changes yeah. and that, that's exciting i want I, I want to dive into the book okay okay because you you have the lifestyle medicine wheel and you have the six spokes of the wheel yeah. and one of the things i love about just the way you are the way you speak the way you write um, is you're just a straight shooter. You, yes. keep it, you keep it nice and simple, straight shooter, and you know exactly where you stand on things. Right. And I think it's served you really, really well. Um, do, so before I ask you about the book, I just where do you think you got your your uh, your spirit from? Your 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 way is it from your mother, your father, somebody yeah. you grew up with, just the way you were born? Yeah. Um, I think 
I think my parents, you know, were, um, I'm an immigrant to this country. I was born in Cuba. My parents, you know, gave everything up to leave uh, their country to bring mm-hmm. us here to give us that stuff. You know, it was communism and they lost everything and, and they came here in the late 1960s and worked really hard. Um, had to work in factories. They didn't know the language uh, and urged um, hard work, uh, ethics, um, your word meant everything. So I just, I just came from like hmm. really um, strong uh, yeah. family and, and lots of love in my family. This belief that you can do anything you want to do mm-hmm. regardless mm-hmm. i mean you know we grew up I, I grew up my early life in newark and you know we we didn't have much but we had a lot of love and we had mm-hmm. uh there was oh my my mother near da- daily would say to me you can do anything you want to do don't mm-hmm. let anyone ever tell you that you're not capable of achieving anything <laughs> and for three years <laughs> well and you let that neurologist tell you ah and then people but you but you stuck to your guns i did you did. We're and yeah, I, and and at times it wasn't easy. I have to say this. It wasn't always perfect. There were setbacks. Yeah. And then there were people the, of course the minute something goes wrong, everyone crowds around you and says, "See? Yeah. We told you." Sure. Uh and so um but I knew in my heart, in my gut that I was going in the right direction and I just needed to stay on the path and mm. not get mm. um you know, distracted. Yeah. And it ultimately bore, you know, it bore fruit for me. Um, I crossed that finish line in 2010. That was seven years after I started. But um, when I crossed, I mean, again, it was never uh, a dream of mine to run a marathon, but that was symbolic, crossing that finish line. I did something that I didn't think was ever, uh, that I would ever be capable of doing. And I was so... um, I was so proud of myself uh, in that moment because every sacrifice I had made, uh, every risk I had taken had paid off. Mm -hmm. And now I felt like I have to um, share this message with as many people as there are willing to hear it. You know, this year, October 11th, 2020 was the 25th anniversary of my hospitalization, my diagnosis. That night when I woke up, age 28, numb legs, MS, wheelchair 10 years. That was 25 years. I walked 25 miles on that day. Hmm. Let, let's dive into some of these uh, yeah. these spokes the of the spokes. wheel. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I, go ahead. So I, the wheel, I use that analogy um, because I, I, the spokes, I, they're interconnected. And so the point that I'm trying to make there is that Every aspect of lifestyle is important. Some of us are really good at food or mm. some of us are really good at exercise and then we drink too much and we're super stressed. So I think it's important that in order for us to achieve our best self and mm. reduce our risk of developing chronic disease and live our optimal existence, we want to pay attention to all six books, right? So the six books are nutrition, exercise, stress, sleep, addressing substance abuse issues and then social interconnectedness we know those of us who are who have love and support in our in, in our lives are more likely or less likely rather to develop depression and anxiety live longer so social interconnections are are also very very important and so paying attention so the book addresses gives um a chapter to each one of these folks but i think it's so important that we understand that they're they're sort of 
in, in large part are are interconnected and and rely on one another we know for example if we exercise we're going to sleep better mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. i mean so when we do that we live i think our optimal existence and that's really my hope for every one of us right imagine if each and of every one of us lived to our greatest potential yeah and accomplished our greatest potential um i say this all the time but i'll say it one more time my hope is that not only do we live to our optimal potential, but on that last day, be it 92 or 102, yeah. on that last day that we experience a beautiful, a happy, joyful day surrounded by our loved ones. Yeah. And then at the end of that day, we go to bed and we pass away peacefully. <laughs> right? Right. Isn't that... The beautiful ending to a well-lived life. Mm-hmm. Regrettably, as a physician, I have witnessed that pain and suffering that so many of us end our lives with in the nursing home, mm-hmm. demented, mm-hmm. wearing a diaper, pressure ulcers, suffering. Um, and it's it's difficult to witness that um, for for that individual patient, but also for the family who has to also uh see their loved one suffering mm. and we and it shouldn't be that way i think that again that's another in our society that's been normalized that that that's the way life ends that you must be in a nursing home and th- that's just part of it mm. that's part of the deal mm. and it doesn't have to be that way yeah i want to i want to go through these one by one yeah I, you don't Whatever makes sense as far as how much you want to talk about it, but I'm going to kind of feed you okay. some information, okay. and then I want you to you know go, do with it what you want. Okay. But the first one uh, really is it, it it's the food, right? Yeah. It's the food, and you just say you know eat more plants, right? Yeah. So what what do you eat in a typical day? Well, I I only eat plant. I don't eat any animal sources in my diet. I mean, do you want me to give you like a menu? Of I'd love I'd love to know like yeah. what you typically eat for what's a typical breakfast, a typical lunch, and a typical yeah, dinner. typical breakfast for me. Uh, like uh, r- right now, I'm traveling, so it's a little bit challenging. But it's it's typically oatmeal. Yeah. With blueberries or raspberries <laughs> or blue- um, berries, lots Fro- of berries. Frozen or fresh? Does it not matter? What it, do you like? When in in the in May and June, when berries are in peak season and they're readily accessible in New Jersey, I buy them fresh. But I always have frozen in 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 my uh, f- freezer yeah. uh, to, to to throw in. But there's always berries uh, uh, included in my oatmeal in the morning. I throw in some flaxseed, a uh, little bit of cinnamon, and, and I'm happy with mm-hmm. a cup of coffee. That's typically and 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 often maybe I'll have another piece of fruit, like an apple. I, I eat a lot of fruit. Um, lunchtime, I will typically have a big salad, something like that. L- lots of color. Um, I, I am a big, uh, um, chickpeas, beans. I mean, uh, black beans are my favorite. I'm Cuban. So black beans are one of my favorite. Yeah. Um, but I eat a lot of legumes. Um, and I'm, and I eat probably a piece of fruit mid morning, mid afternoon, um, just as fuel if I need it. Yeah. Um, and then dinner, it varies. Do you, do you usually have a, a, a dressing on that salad? 
I I just add a little bit of balsamic vinegar. Uh-huh. I don't. I, I that's it. Okay. I keep it really simple. Or um, I might add some lime or or even some orange. Like I'll oh. squeeze an orange over something. Like I, because I'm Cuban, lime is big for me. A little lime and cilantro on a salad for me is uh-huh. Uh-huh. awesome. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But I but I I like I like to taste food. I don't add a lot to stuff. Yeah. Um, and. Very simple, very simple. Like uh, I'm happy with some brown rice, some black mm-hmm. beans, and and you know some cucumbers, avocados. Um, yeah. Well, I'm glad. Simple. I'm glad you said that because I find that so many people they smother their food yeah, with with you know dressings and um, just things that 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 uh, prevent you from really tasting yes. the real beautiful sublimeness. Yes. That's in the red bell pepper or the mandarin orange or the yeah. the chickpeas or whatever. Absolutely. And I add a lot of herbs to things. Like I have one of those, um, like in, in my kitchen, it's growing basil and cilantro and parsley. So I'll throw something like that onto a dish and just, mm. it just opens it up and I just love it. How about dinner? Um, so, you know, I, I tend to be, again, my Cubanist, I'm a big like rice and bean that's 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 one of my my favorite dishes. So yeah. any type of rice and bean dish um, is is very popular. My husband's Italian American, so we do a lot of pasta with like zucchini, broccoli rabe, you know, dishes like that. A lot of yeah. like veggie dishes and pasta. Um, How about do you do you have a dessert ever, or is it just fruit? It's fruit for me. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, on occasion I do like chocolate. I'll so, have it. Yeah, is Ralph is Ralph. Uh, also plant based. He's plant based, yeah, and he's a six time Ironman. Oh, <laughs> so he yeah. good. He's fit. Yeah. How about the, well, how about how about your two children? My um, my kids are also plant based. I mean, they, you know, I'm not one of these moms that makes three different types of meals for everybody. Mm-hmm. You eat you you eat what I've prepared, and if mm-hmm. you don't eat that, then you're not eating. I mean, you know, we're very um, yeah. No, they're plant based. Um, you know, my daughter sometimes can be a little bit uh, challenging, but she's 17 and but yeah, in, in our house we make what we make and and um they, they'll eat what, what i prepare <laughs> yeah. now i can't control what she does when she's sure. in school but yeah okay so um eat more plants so exercise you say play more i love the fact yeah. that you're saying let's try and figure out how this can be playful yeah to make it fun i because i think um so many of us think that you have to you, when you start an exercise regimen that it has to be all you know all or none and and some of us who maybe have been sedentary for a long time and just feel like there's I'm scared to go to the gym I don't feel right um, it, it just find something that that you enjoy doing mm. um, just start with a, a, a walk I know, you know the physical activity guidelines say that we should include at least 150 minutes of moderate physical activity per week and and two um, sessions of resistance training yeah absolutely and we want to build to that but you know the average patient that I see in the clinic setting is doing nothing mm-hmm. and so you can't throw that at them day one like do this we have to build up. that that's an important point that i want to raise is in our in our country we want the quick fix Mm -hmm. that's like you know the pill that's going to fix the problem um lifestyle medicine and behavior modification is about investing and taking small steps in the right direction 
right? And not feeling like if you don't do everything in, in, in a week or in a month, then you're a failure. Mm. And we're so hard on ourselves, Rip, if we don't accomplish that thing, we don't lose uh, those 10 pounds in the first month. Oh, then I'm just going back to my old ways. And and I, I wish we would walk away from those um, because... I think that sets us up for, for failure, and it sets us up to sort of replay this. And you, you know the whole scenario. I'll start Monday my diet, this whole idea of dieting and mm-hmm. and, 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 and calorie counting and, and weighing food. And, and, and I mean, I grew up in that generation. I call it the you know Oprah Winfrey generation where we were all fixated on losing weight. And how did we do it? We drank Diet Coke and Tab, and we ate um, you know 100-calorie bars that were just processed garbage just to keep the calorie count down. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the wonderful thing about plant-based nutrition is that you can eat ample food because you're eating these, these plates that are nutrient-dense but calorically deficient. Yes. And so we can eat so profoundly. So finally, I just want to tell every woman in America, eat, fill your plate, because you can't, you're not going to gain weight. I mean, think about it. How much broccoli do you have to eat in order, 100 calories of broccoli, what would that, that's a big, big plate. Well, you have to eat about 40 pounds. (laughs) Right, you know. So it's about... um, our relationships with food, particularly women, um, we we ha- we have this terrible relationship with food. We see it as this um, villain that, mm. you know, when we eat it, it, it we feel guilty because then we're going to gain weight mm-hmm. and we're not going to fit into that. Um, and I want to change that perspective. I want people to to um, find the joy of the flavors of food, the the beauty, and that you can eat and feel satiated both physically and emotionally and and um and maintain a healthy weight mm-hmm. and 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 it's not so, and and sort of the weight is not is not the main um outcome that we need to measure right it's it's about our health yeah, yeah. it's our ability to live uh, disease free it's our better quality of life mm-hmm. our ability to 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 ex- experience joy yeah, if you can get past the superficiality of just trying to lose weight, yes, and then make the end goal yes. be just to get supremely healthy, the weight take care always takes care of itself. Exactly, it's just a byproduct of getting healthy. It's a beautiful yes. thing. Yes. So um, number three is stress, and you say stay present. Yeah. Which I mean, I think is like perfect especially with everything that we got going on right now and it seems like so many people are i mean they are maxed out they are stressed yeah and this for me learning that practice of mindfulness and and seeing the world differently like sort of stepping out of myself and and looking at the world with a new set of eyes a new perspective um the day I was diagnosed, uh, if you would have, if we would have had an interview on that day, I would have said to you, "This is the worst day of my life. My life is over." When mm-hmm. I look back in retrospect, I can say that it was probably one of the best days of my life, because it put me on this path. And that moment of of suffering and and that pain that I experienced subsequently, uh, I needed to have that in order to evolve to who I am today. Mm-hmm. And I think so many of us. Whenever uh, something doesn't work out in our favor or um, there's an obstacle that presents itself, we lose a job or we lose um, an opportunity or we a friend, you, we, we needed to have that experience in order to get us to the next stage. So mm-hmm. when you have that perspective, then oh, there's yeah. there's this like 
release. Uh, and so like anyone, like everyone else, I have to deal with challenges and, and, and at points sadness in my life um, and things that seem unfair. But at the end of the day, what was it that we were, when we were talking before, um, what you said about Anthony Hopkins? Where oh, yeah, basically uh, how everything, everything is important, but really in the reality, nothing is important. Exactly. And, yeah. and, and that, that's where I am. I, I see that. Yeah. And I believe that everything is, um, everything that presents itself to me, uh, it was a, was a necessary experience for me. Mm-hmm. And so I accept it. And, and you know, Eckhart Tolle is, I, I love uh, his books. There's a particular book called A New Earth that, that has just been very important in my life. I think I've probably read this book more than a dozen times. Whenever I have a difficult moment in my life, I turn to it. And I, his words um, just really bring me so much peace. What's What's the book? Uh, a New Earth. A but, New Earth. A New Earth by Eckhart Tolle. So he's a, yeah. a, a mindfulness. Oh, yeah, yeah, I've heard. He's written another book, Power of Now. You might know that yeah. one. But a New Earth is, is, is my favorite. And he talks about um, suffering. And he says, we suffer when we resist what is. Mm-hmm. When you accept, and it's so true, when you accept whatever condition is presented before you, mm-hmm. the suffering ends. The suffering is when you push against it, when you won't accept it. Mm-hmm. When you... And then that to that was one of those moments like, wow, that's really profound. Mm-hmm. That really makes a lot of. And all of a sudden, I started to apply this principle in my life, and I found that there was a lot of peace that came from that. Mm-hmm. Well, I, f- I find that staying present and being in the moment, yes, is it's one of the hardest things to do. But if you can do it. It is it's one of the most beautiful things. Like with my kids, right? Yes. Just being able to like turn everything else off, get my mind focused, and just like be in the moment with them. You know, whether it's playing cornhole or looking at something that they drew <laughs> or playing um, uh, a game around the dinner table or whatever it is. But you just gotta like just jump in, both feet. Next thing, sleep hygiene. Mm. You say you know sleep, rest well. Obviously, you had your own yeah. issues with the ambient, yeah. um, and so, and it seems like a lot of people with screen screen time and everything else are uh, are not sleeping well these days. No, it's a big problem. And but for me personally, I I think of all of all, all of the spokes obviously were incredibly powerful for me. But sleep was one of is one that I am most proud of because it was so difficult to overcome. It really mm. was. Coming off of Ambien and, and other sleep agents and anxiolytics like, you know, benzos that I was given, um, to come off of those medications and really learn uh, sleep physiology and understand it um, was uh, so in- incredibly important for me. Understanding... Uh, the importance of the environment. The room should be cool, dark, and quiet. I mean, these are again, these are not things that I, I learned in medical school. This mm-hmm. is just going back and really understanding uh, that what are my pre-sleep rituals? What was I doing throughout the course of the day that could affect my sleep? Um, was that glass of wine or two glasses of yeah. wine affecting my sleep? Looking particularly t- nowadays, I've everyone's... heard I've had more friends of mine tell me that if they have a glass of 
Yeah. Red wine, their sleep is shot. Yes, it's shot. It affects your, you know, you're not getting into those um, uh, stages of sleep. Yeah. And and we need to we need to get into those, uh, you know, deep uh, stages of sleep because that's where we recuperate and we regenerate. So really understanding that whole process, um, and creating structure like one of the most important things is that we need to in order to be a really good sleeper you Mm. have to have structure Mm. so you really have to people don't like to hear this but you really should set a bedtime and a wake-up time and in between those two eight hours right and be fixed you uh, so i go to bed people laugh but i this works for me i go to bed at nine o'clock and i wake up at five wow and rip I, I call myself a professional sleeper. I'm so good at it. And I sleep so beautifully. Like I go to bed. I mean, I, I yeah. fall asleep within 10 minutes. And then I wake up. I don't have an alarm clock. Yeah. And today I woke up 5 o'clock. Do you ever wake up in the middle of the night to like roll well, over or pee or well, anything like no. that? Well, yes. So one of the, so having lived with MS, MS does a lot of damage to the bladder. So yes, I probably have to get up two or three times at night to go yeah. to the bathroom. But I can, it's almost like I'm doing it sleepwalking. I can do it and go right back to bed. It doesn't really interfere uh, or uh, interrupt my sleep because I go right back. Um, And and I feel so, when I wake up in the morning, I feel so energized. I typically go for a run or a long walk or a hike. um, And I feel creative. So at five o'clock in the morning for me is like, Mm -hmm. wow, there's a lot of good stuff going on up here. You know, I just feel my best. You wear a mask? I, do, I don't wear a mask. Earplugs? I I, no, I have blackout shades. Um, there's no television uh, in my room. Do you have I white noise? I, no. I live no. in a, I, well, I live in a really quiet yeah. um, environment. I'm not yeah. in the city or anything like that. Yeah. But um, Do you have a feather, I, a down pillow? What kind of pillow do I you have, have? I have a down pillow, yeah. I mean, so the bedding's great. And I just, it used to be at one point that sleep was like torture for me because I would get into bed and I would worry about things. Yeah. I would, you know, that's another part of the stress because I would stress. I was the worst um, as a young woman, you know, medical student resident worrying about my boards and, you know, was I going to get into this yeah. fellowship or this residency? Was it just constant? Am I going to pass that exam? You know, it was always a, a lot of stress and, or, around uh, sleep time. And so I, I get in, sleep has just been for me. And before I go to bed, there's always a period of about five to 10 minutes of meditation or gratitude or prayer, whatever you want to call it. I think it's important. And I do this also in the morning, uh, offer um, my gratitude. Every morning I wake up and everything, I feel everything and I'm in one yeah. piece is joy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good. So I, I, I sleep, um, rest well. Um Substance intake mm. seems like a lot of Americans, whether it's drugs, whether it's nicotine, you know, cigarettes, whether it's alcohol. Um, it's a problem. Yeah, yeah. And you're, um, I love what you say. You say basically thrive without. Thrive without, right? yeah. Thrive without. Thrive without. Mm. I, I, I think, you know, on occasion, I mean, I'm not saying, here's the thing, Uh, there's no safe amount of alcohol. There really isn't. I mean, even even one glass of wine can... The safest amount is the least amount. Yeah, yeah. So with that said, uh, I know that on occasion, I mean, I I enjoy a glass of wine on occasion. It's not something I do every day. Yeah. 
but I think I think it's important that that's voiced because in our in our country, alcohol is again very much normalized. It's part of everything mm-hmm. we do. We go to a game, we have a drink, um, we go out to dinner, we have a couple of drinks, um, every gathering. You know, so it's 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 very much normalized. And I think that we need to understand that there is some risk there, and that we need to become mindful about how much we're consuming so if you go out to dinner stop at that one glass you don't have to have the second one because when you lose that attention or that mindfulness then you're you know you're gonna okay i'll have another one and and think about it uh, what you're doing and how you're using alcohol are you using alcohol to take the edge off are you using the alcohol to deal with your stress from your job or, or are you using alcohol because i went out with rip we had a beautiful dinner and we had a wonderful glass of wine because we were celebrating that's very different than using it to take the edge off so those are questions that i would you know that i want to um have with patients so that they become a bit more thoughtful now the substance abuse uh, chapter uh, for me too was not just talking about all that we just listed but i also included a little bit on supplements i saw that vitamins and stuff interesting i think it i think that um bears some um, explanation. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, the supplement industry is a multi-billion dollar industry. And we turn to it as if, again, it's the magic pill. It's going to solve the problem. It's not. The evidence isn't there that it's really making any difference. And it can potentially do damage. And I don't know if you had a chance uh, to read it, but I shared a personal story there back in... 2005 when I was feeling really good uh, I read a book it was a doctor who talked about supplements and how they were if you take these supplements your health is going to improve so I'm thinking wow I feel pretty good right now with this lifestyle thing Uh, if I add the supplements maybe I'll feel even maybe I don't know I can run 10 marathons (laughs) so I started taking the supplements that this fine doctor was prescribing in his book. Two, three months into this, I found myself um, losing weight, developing nausea and vomiting. Um, ultimately, I ended up in the hospital with something called drug-induced liver injury. Mm. These medications, I mean, these supplements, people don't consider them medication. They are. Mm-hmm. They're metabolized through the liver and they can interact. Um, they're not monitored by the FDA. They don't need to gain uh, uh, approval through the, 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 um, the approach that we would for a pharmaceutical agent. You know, so I took these um, supplements and they nearly killed me. I mean, there's a 10% chance of mortality with drug-induced liver injury and, and even you know, liver transplantation. I was in the hospital for two weeks and it took six months to recover from wow. it. So are yeah. you taking like handfuls of supplements when you said that I mean, yes i was taking because this person yeah. uh and you know there are who many, shall remain unnamed who remain, which is fine. shall remain unnamed <laughs> but you know they're out there the books yeah. are out there and they'll and they sell the products under their name yeah uh and and i was i was taking what the doctor said was necessary and it was probably i don't know 12 pills well i would imagine if somebody like you mm-hmm decided that this was a good idea and worth exploring. Mm-hmm. There's probably <clears throat> hundreds upon hundreds of people of who are doing, doing the same thing. Of course. And probably also having similar results. I would imagine that 
this this is not an uncommon uh, phenomenon, drug-induced liver injury. Uh, I actually went on to write a paper on that topic uh, with a group of experts. Um, I was at that time um, when I recovered from that. I was working for Roche Genentech as a scientist in developing treatments for hepatitis C, and and uh, so I worked in this liver disease. realm or space and there was an opportunity to join a group that was looking at drug-induced liver injury and I had it was it was a quite a learning experience for me to work with um, experts from across the world and we wrote a paper on it it's it's a real um, it's a real concern and I think it's important for individuals who are just out there Mm -hmm. thinking I'm going to go to the supplement section of the store and i'm just going to buy all this stuff and think that it's it's only i think here a lot of people think well it can only do good it can only help me safety net (laughs) yeah exactly no be aware and be very very careful and always if you're taking any supplement tell your doctor don't Mm. just don't because you'll ask a patient are you taking anything and and they'll give you the medications but they ignore the the supplements and sometimes they can interact with medications so always be fully transparent and and share Mm -hmm. everything that you're taking so would it be fair to say that outside of maybe b12 that if you're going to consider supplementing with anything else you should have a conversation with your doctor. I mean, and many make of sure us, there's a no deficiency. Yeah, or? I mean, there, like vitamin D is something that that yeah. is uh, that might be uh, something that you need to supplement. Um, there was a, a paper just yesterday that actually uh, uh, Dean Ornish forwarded to me, uh, about, and this has been recognized. Who for, wrote the forward for your book? Yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, who. Um, and we and this has been recognized from t- for some time that uh, low vitamin D levels uh, um, uh, may be playing a role in, in MS. So mm-hmm. certainly vitamin D is something that I monitor in myself. When, when you say because it seems to me like the jury's still out on vitamin vitamin D it is. And, and what are low levels and what are appropriate levels. I yes. mean, do you have a do you have an opinion on that? Yeah, I do have an op- opinion on on that, and I and I think that um, I you I. I didn't speak to it directly in the book because it's uh, it's a field that's always changing, yeah. and I think that it's it, the the recommendation may vary for the individual. So I don't like to give recommendations. I think it's something that should be looked at. But you're right; the jury is out. I think at one point, and this happens every decade in the field of medicine, we get enthralled with some vitamin, yeah, and then we overprescribe it, and then at the end of the day, it it, it does nothing, right? <laughs> So this happened with beta carotene. Uh, this happened with vitamin E, and, and so we end up writing these uh, mega doses. Uh, and and w- what you need to do is get those nutrients from food. Right. Right. <laughs> um, but no. But you know, then the supplement industry doesn't. So it's below ten. Would you say below ten on your vitamin D is too low? Oh, we don't know that. That's definitely that's that's deficiency for you, sure. And, and at yeah. that point, would you recommend supplementation? Oh, for sure, for sure. That that, that person, uh, ten microgram, you definitely need to be supplemented. But the question is, how much do you need to be supplemented, uh, and how often do you need to be monitored? I mean, vitamin D is a fat soluble vitamin. You can uh, you can accumulate yeah. too much. Yeah. Um, there are in the field of MS, they ask patients to take very high doses, and they they want um, levels of uh, as high as sixty. Uh, I, I I just don't 
I have some issues with that because mm-hmm. the where the evidence is and what value might come of that. But I, I think it's a field that is ever evolving. I think most physicians would agree that the vitamin that vitamin D has sort of uh, many of the studies that we've done, and it's been looked at in you know heart disease and diabetes and MS and all, most of these studies have been null that really haven't shown that it mm-hmm. th- that if you supplement that it makes a, a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, again, I think this is a, a, a trend in, in medicine that we, every decade, are enthralled with some new vitamin yeah. or nutrient. Yeah. So let's be really careful with that. Yeah, let's be careful. <laughs> I, the, the most important thing we need to do and the simplest approach to living that optimal existence is the things that we've just talked about. It's so mm-hmm. simple. Like, mm-hmm. how, how, what could we do, Mr. Smith? What could we do to in- include more plants on your plate? Mm-hmm. So, Sarai, I'm Mr. Smith. I come to you. I am about 40 pounds overweight. I have uh, a fasting glucose that's about 120. Mm-hmm. I have elevated blood pressure. Um, and um, I have high cholesterol, so I'm on some statins for that as well. What would you tell me to do? The same thing I would tell um, uh, Mrs. Wilson, who has M- it's the same. It's the same prescription. Uh-huh. It really is. It's, it's, and give, tell me how, what, what I well, should do. I mean, one of the first things I do when the patient comes in is they, they have some paperwork that they complete when they come in, right? So the, yes. So there's going to be um, a couple of days of their diet. So I know where they are. Yeah. Right. So, um, and. I have to assess in that time, in that hour that I spend talking to him about, you know, who he is, because I take a really thorough history. I really want to understand everything about you. What is your willingness to change, Mm. right? Mm. Because we have to be respectful and we have to understand where that person is. What are you willing to do? Why did you come here today? I am am willing to do whatever it takes to get me healthy. So so we're, we're... we're, we're looking at what you're consuming. So for breakfast, you had bacon, eggs, and, and a biscuit. I, this, I, I have that six mornings a week. Yeah. Well, let me tell you what this is doing to you, <laughs> and then we're going to talk about how that's promoting your pre... Because you're, you're pre-diabetic, and yeah. you're 40 pounds overweight. And, and if we do nothing, you're going to become diabetic. And and so let's we're going to be proactive here, and we're going to prevent that deleterious path. Because we're we, suddenly today, Mr. Smith, you were going in this direction, and now... This is a new beginning for you, right? Wow. And we're gonna we're gonna be we're gonna introduce this change by modifying your diet. So let's talk about what your breakfast would look like. What do you like? Tell me things that you enjoy for breakfast. Out, could you see yourself eating a bowl of oatmeal? Love it. Could you see yourself? Okay. So these are the things that we're gonna start to introduce, and we're gonna talk about how it's really important to keep that plate colorful. Mm. And we're gonna, why is color important when you walk into that? Um, grocer and in, in that produce section, all those beautiful bright colors that, that are staring back at you. What do they represent? That that excites people, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, so patients will call me, send me pictures. How, look how colorful my plate is. They're excited about it. Yeah. I have patients who have like start an Instagram account. It's just me and them, uh, and they, you know, I'm the only person who can see it, and yeah. they show all of their their. So it's it's about inspiring them, engaging them, but understanding what are you willing to do today? And it, it, it doesn't have to be all or none. Again, the same thing that we talked, the same rule that we applied to exercise. Um, because I don't want you to be, do this for two weeks and then stop. Yeah. 
You know, I, I want this to be something that, and there are patients that come in and say, Doc, I'm I can do it all. I'm ready to do it now. Um, I had that moment, the hallelujah moment. I'm, I'm doing it. Great. But the majority of individuals are not quite just there. And, and it's largely because I think culture, society, mm. the rest of the healthcare setting is not fully on board. So again, I, I deal with that where I have a patient and they're also seeing the cardiologist or the endocrinologist or, or whatever, the rheumatologist, and they're not on the same page. So there are obstacles that need to, that there are hurdles that we constantly need to climb. Yeah, yeah. So um, last is social connection, yes. um, basically grow love, which I love. Yeah, right. So we know from a lot of work done by social scientists, Christakis and Fowler, that the more connections we have, they're more favorable to outcomes. And it's also not just the number of connections that we have, but also the types of connections that we have, Yeah. right? So if you have, if your best friend is, um, you know, a sedentary um alcoholic that doesn't bode well for you but if you have rip esselstyn as your best friend what are you going to likely to do you're going to go out hiking you talked about that nice walk outside yeah um so you know it's important to surround ourselves with like-minded individuals right so if you're uh, that if you're in a community that um, maybe does plant-based potlucks uh or, or engages in in hiking events very different than um if we engage in in, in a sedentary lifestyle we're sitting in front of a television eating and you know drinking beer and yeah. eating chips yeah uh so here's the book what's missing from medicine um i just have the you have I'm, it I'm, I'm here i don't have the hard copy and i'm but, so sending you one tomorrow <laughs> but, i feel terrible that i didn't but, bring it but uh six lifestyle changes to overcome chronic illness it's uh it's a beautiful book congratulations on that thank you what are you most excited about right now going forward yeah well i think the future um is about uh the creating change on a, on a global scale and um i've i'm sort of involved in an opportunity right i'm not ready to talk about it um yeah uh prime time but i i, I will soon maybe i can come back and talk about it once w- we're out there i would love um, that but i there's a, a very exciting opportunity with really good people and i've had uh, the wonderful privilege of joining this team of um game changers that yeah. really want to not just uh, create small things, but big things and change the world. And I'm, I'm so honored to be part of that team. And, and largely that opportunity came to me through you. So uh, mm-hmm. you are uh, a blessing to me. Well, it would, be, it would be phenomenal if you could take what you've done with your clinic in New Jersey and figure out a way to replicate that Yes. all over the United States and the world. So That's the hope. Hooray! Um, <laughs> thanks so much for coming here this morning. I know it was super, super early, but I appreciate it. But you wake up at five, so this is no issue this for is, you. This is my prime time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. With that, let me say thank you for being such a, uh, a trailblazer and everything you're doing to contribute to the the the, the health of uh, of you know of this country and and the world. You know, it's not it's not an easy path per se, but but it's a worthwhile path, and you are, you know, between code blue, between the clinics, between what's missing in medicine, and um, and your positive can-do attitude. Uh, I can't wait to see what the next decade brings for you. Thank you so, so much, Rip. Yeah, thank you. Reflecting on this interview with Dr. Sarai Stanzik.
so many things stood out, but what I really loved was when she said that she had to be willing to take the risk to treat her MS in what was at the time a, a super unpopular and unconventional way. She was willing to go against the grain and the opinions of some of her most trusted mentors to seek some semblance of a quality of life. And it all started with a picture of blueberries on the cover of a medical journal. I hope that this podcast empowers you to take some risks that you otherwise may not take. Don't worry though, we've got your back with tons of support and programs to assist you. Visit plantstrongpodcast.com or plantstrong.com today for all of our resources. Thanks for listening and keep it plant strong. Thank you for listening to the Plant Strong Podcast. You can support the show by taking a quick minute to follow us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Leaving us a positive review and sharing the show with your network is another great way to help us reach as many people as possible with the exciting news about plants. Thank you in advance for your support. It means everything. Have you had your own Galileo moment that you'd like to share? What happened when you stepped into the arena and shed the beliefs that you thought to be true? I'd love to hear about it. Visit plantstrongpodcast.com to submit your story and to learn more about today's guests and sponsors. The Plant Strong Podcast team includes Carrie Barrett, Lori Kordowich, Amy Mackey, Patrick Gavin, and Wade Clark. This season is dedicated to all of those courageous truth seekers who weren't afraid to look through the lens with clear vision and hold firm to a higher truth. Most notably, my parents, Dr. Caldwell B. Esselstyn Jr. and Anne Cryle Esselstyn. Thanks for listening.